Oh, that's very nice. It, it introduces us. How, that's lovely. Well, good morning to everybody. Thank you for all coming. Our room is starting to fill back up again. It's, it feels fantastic to be back to where we, we needed to be, I think. And it'd be lovely, of course, if we just filled the whole room. That'd be good, too. Um, we are in Chapter 2 of our homework. We are working on chapter one of the book of Revelation. And what I want to do first and foremost is go through what you're going to be working on next week so that you're prepared for your next week's homework before I dive in. Um, next week, we have... Uh, oh, that's right. Week after next, because next week we're off for Memorial Day. Thank you, Kathy. But the following week, when you come back, so you have two weeks to work on this, which is probably really good because I look through the work and there, it seems to me to be a significant amount for, especially if you're new in this. And I don't want you to feel overwhelmed. So do dive into it right away and start working on it. Because what you're going to be doing is working it out of your how-to study book, which I put mine right here. Hold on. Your how-to study book, which is going to give you another, another chapter to read this week. This week, you are going to be going in the appendix, way in the back of your book, on a section called Tense, Voice, and Mood of Verbs. Um, I was telling Annette, and she and I had a little moment last week where she raised up her little blue book. I love it. This blue book that she has, um, it has this lovely chart in there that you don't have in here. And I know it's because the chart would not have fit on a page, right? But this chart, I think is easier to read than what you're gonna be looking at in here. I think you need to read this, but then this right here is going to be something that's gonna be helpful when you're doing your homework because they're gonna be saying, um, let, me, let me open it up here because she's gonna ask you, again, there's more stuff. She's gonna be asking you for things like uh, look at this word, remember, and then she's going to say, um, what does it mean that it's present active imperative? You're going to feel like you're back in high school again with your English class. But the good thing is, is this chart, which I am going to send out to you, I shouldn't say I, Kristen is going to send out to you. This is going to be a chart I think that will be very helpful to you. So just know that when you get your um, homework uh, email from her this week, be sure to go in there and open up this voice, tense, and mood chart because you're and print it out. You're going to want to have that when you do your homework. I, I'm just telling you it's a help. It's going to help you simplify what you're going to find is in your book. And it's in the book, but this is easier. I just know this because I tried looking at it last night and went, oh my gosh, I've forgotten a lot of this because we haven't done voice, tense, and mood stuff for a long, long time. So this is going to be new for most of you. And for those of you who it's not, uh, I still say this is easier because it, it gives you columns to go and put, and put it and look for it and find it easier. So in any event, that's, your, that's one of the things inductively that you're going to be expounding your understanding on this week, voice, tense, and mood. Okay, And it's not a chapter in the book. It's in the appendix, appendix E. Okay. Mine is page 157. I don't know what page yours is, but it's after all of the other chapters way in the back. 
Okay. Okay, so that's one thing you need to, to know about your homework. What you are going to be asked to do is read chapters one through three, just like you would a book, so that you get the flow of the thought again in your mind. I think these, these steps are so essential, and I know often we tend to blow them off and go, up, oh, move on, right? But don't do that, because what happens with um, doing a study, especially this, this particular study, is you want to keep the full picture in mind all the time as you move into the homework. So do go ahead and read those three chapters to get that full flow. You're going to start right there in one where you get your introductory and you're going to be able to go all the way through and see what's going on. She's going to be asking you in the homework on day one and two to observe chapter um, two. In particular, you're going to be looking just at the first one, which is the letter to the church of Ephesus. It's chapter two, verses one to seven. So just kind of get that in your mind. Your, your major work is Ephesus, but she's going to start you out by asking you to look at the fullness of those two chapters and look for key repeated phrases that occurs in the totality of all those letters to all seven churches. So it's almost like, again, a little overview. Look at the totality, what is the key repeated message to every one of the churches, mark those things, and then she's going to say, now go back and look at, at the letter to the Ephesians, okay, the, the church at Ephesus. Okay, that's one thing. She's also going to ask you to do some map, map work this week. Uh, you have a map in the back of your appendix. It's page 121. Um, I like to photocopy my map and then I can scribble and color all over my copy piece and keep my actual map clean in case I want to go back and redo it because I've messed this up in some way. That's how I like to work just because I know me. I sometimes make mistakes, right? I sometimes mark something and go, oh, that's not where that is. That's over here, right? So you might want to do that for yourself. It's just another one of my little tips. The other thing you're going to be doing next week uh, is this chart called message, uh, Jesus's message to the churches. It's going to look like this. It's, it's mapped out. It's got columns for you to write specific answers to questions concerning each of the churches. And this is going to be a progressive fill-in chart. You are going to each, each time you finish a church, like this week, you'll do the letter to the Ephesians um, or at Ephesus, and you're going to fill in that part. And then next time, you're going to fill in the next uh, church. And as you do each church, you'll fill in that section. So this is one that's going to be ongoing. Um, the chart is, again, in your appendix. It's page 129. Um, it is front and back. On the original that's in the in the uh, appendix I printed it so that it's single sheeted because I like to lay them out later one on top of the other and see the whole thing and be able to look at all of it that's another little tip ahead of time just in case you want to think on that I just all you do is photocopy it but just photocopy on separate sheets instead of back to back okay so that, if you want to you don't have to do any of these things. They're just my little tips to you. Okay. And let me see what else we've got going on in here. Um, 
I don't think. I think that's pretty much it. That's pretty much all I really needed to cover on what you're going to be doing next week for homework. Okay. Good. Okay. That looks like it. Yes. Are you, do you have an in and out book? Yeah, in the appendix. Oh, yeah, that's going to be your last day's part of homework. This is what I'm saying. She has maps. She's got two different charts you're going to be working on. You're going to be doing word studies. You're going to be doing voice mood and verb tenses, which you got to kind of comprehend in your head. So it's, it's I think, a pretty... I, I call it a, a heavier study in that there are more pieces to it. And when you're learning the, the inductive Bible study process, every time there's another tool of observation, a new way of looking at things, it's one more thing your mind has to kind of get wrapped around, right? And you have to kind of grab and go, why am I doing this? And what's the purpose of this? And, and then you get more comfortable doing it. But in the beginning, it's tougher. So next week, you're going to get several things kind of thrown at you. So since you have two weeks to work on it, that's a good thing. Please use the full two weeks because you'll be happy if you at least get half of it done this week and do the other half the next week. Okay. All right. And you can always text me for questions. That's not a problem. Okay. All right. Good. Yay. All right. We're done. That takes care of inductive work 101 for your homework next week what you're going to be doing this week we did our observation worksheet which is called focusing in on the details chapter three of your how-to study book and you also looked at chapter eight which had to do with uh figures of speech correct and every did everybody find th that that worked out just fine for you and had no problem with that Yes. Okay, great. Okay. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at the more in-depth observations. I know that after we looked at chapter one last week, you probably thought we've covered everything that we could possibly look at in there. But the reality is no. <laughs> one of the things that we did not do was outline chapter one. What we, what we went in for last week was to set context, right? What is the what is the context setting all about? Why do we do a context setting? What does that do for us as students? Yeah, it absolutely helps you to be able to interpret because if you don't understand the context, one of the examples Precept has in their book is like a, it's like a, a frog in a pond. And if you don't understand what a frog is, who he is, why he's there, what he does when he's there, then if you are totally oblivious to what a frog is, you look at this frog in this water and you're like, why is he in that water, right? But once you set context, oh, this is what a frog does. This is what their habitat is. This is what they like to eat, right? This is how they reproduce. I mean, you learn all these things about the frog and why he would be in that pond. Then all of a sudden you go, oh, I get it. That is exactly what we're doing in inductive Bible study last week. We were setting context to understand Revelation. Who wrote it? Why was it written? What was the message? What was the environment in which it was written? And so we kind of looked briefly at all those things in order to establish that. So uh, just by way of review, who is our author? John. John. What do we know about John from looking at chapter one? On the island of Patmos. He was on the island of Patmos. Now, did anybody research that to 
determine what the deal was. Yes, Amanda. Isn't that amazing? Eventually it was Australia, but before that, it was a prison colony for who? Rome. <laughs> so Rome is, that poor island, it's just been blackballed, huh? <laughs> it's got all the bad guys out there. Okay, so what, what else did you learn? Uh, he was there after he had been boiled in oil, only he did not die. And the Romans were very superstitious. So they would not try to kill him again. So they put him on Patmos in not good conditions at all. And thinking, well, he'll just die there. Wow, that's interesting. Now, I've heard about the having been boiled and oiled, which is by tradition. It's not in the scripture, right? But it's, it's a traditional insight about what happened with John and his persecution. One of the insights we did get, though, is how, when John introduced himself as a fellow brother and a partaker of what? What was going on with him? Yeah, one who was of tribulation. Now, not to confuse that with the book of tribulation, the book about tribulation, but that he himself was in tribulation. He and he says of it, he says, I, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance, which are in Jesus. So very interesting. He follows saying, basically, he's backing up exactly what you're saying. There was some kind of tribulation. Boy, he didn't explain it. Why do you think he didn't explain it? I got boiled in oil. Right. Obviously, this vision thing became much more significantly important at the moment. Exactly. Good. And glad you brought that out because that is that is the reason or the occasion for why he was on the island itself. And he was on this island of Pentmos because he apparently had been proclaiming the word of God. And this was something that was not acceptable in that moment by that particular government. Right. And I can tell you, uh, we are fast approaching those days ourselves. We, don't, we have never in America really experienced that. America was founded on on religion itself. I mean, we came here and established a constitution and laws that were based right out of God's word, right? You can't kill people. You can't steal. You shouldn't commit adultery. I mean, all the basic 10 commandments are right in our basic laws, but what is happening in our nation now? We are losing it. And apparently you didn't know this, but apparently freedom of speech was not something that was honored or recognized by the Roman government in that moment. Because John himself had been shut up, had been told, no, you cannot speak those things about the testimony of God's word and the testimony of Jesus Christ himself. And therefore, he was persecuted. He had what he called tribulation. Okay. Any other insights about John that you learned? Okay, so that's a good backdrop, though, as far as information about who he is and what was going on and why he was there. Um, so that's who are authors. What about our recipients? Who are the recipients of this? Bond service. In particular, I love the fact that it opens. Um, who who um, intended that the recipient be 
that title, The Bond Servants? God did. Isn't that interesting? Because it says God did it and he gave it to Jesus, to, who gave it to his angel, and he gave it to, to Jesus for the bond servant. To, that the bond servant would receive this information. Now, who is the bond servant? How do we define that? We are. The faithful and is, uh, as a bond servant is described in the Old Testament. Very, okay. I like the fact that you mentioned Jesus' name because when it says it's bond servants and it's whose bond servants? Jesus' bond servants, the bond servants of Jesus Christ. So it's because of their bond, their bondedness <laughs> to Christ that God says, because you are in this bonded relationship, you're as a bond servant to my son, I am giving this word to you. Now, there is so much you can study on that throughout the Old Testament about how God, who, who, those who are his friend, receive the insights and the messages that others just don't receive and would not comprehend even if they did. But, you know, when God spoke with Moses in the Old Testament, he called him his friend. And he said, because you're my friend, I'm telling you these things that will come to pass. That is exactly what we're seeing here in Revelation. God says, because you are a friend to my son, I am giving you this word that is uh, written specifically for you, the bondservant. The other thing that is mentioned to us in chapter one is uh, in relationship to the, the recipient is also something that is more of a uh, congregational reception who is that the church so it's it's yes you the bond servant individually first and foremost but also you the congregation of believers being the church and i love that now in chapter one it mentions what churches seven of them ephesus smyrna pergamum thyatira philadelphia sardis and laodicea right so all seven churches are mentioned by name in chapter one but when we made a comparison last week at the end we went to chapter 22 were the seven mentioned no but was the church mentioned and was the, the indication there at the end in ch chapter 22 that the letter and the information was for the churches? Yeah. And yet it wasn't specified the, the seven churches. So what does that tell us? It's for all the churches. Now, how would you take that then for application today? Does that come forward to the church today? Yeah. You know what's interesting is... From God's perspective, he doesn't see individual churches. Did, did you know that? When God looks, he looks at what's in the, one of the doxologies is the whole Catholic church. Catholic meaning the wholeness, not Catholic as in Roman Catholic, but Catholic as the whole church. He looks upon the earth globally and he says, my church. Isn't that neat? And so when he writes it to the bond servants individually and to the church, the collective, he's speaking to the totality of all churches throughout all generations so that it's not just to the seven. And so when we start titling things and we start making um, specific understanding of who the letter is to, it's best probably not to say the seven churches, but to rather just simply say the churches.
so that you don't get that built into your brain and just this, because it's what's going to happen is you learn it that way and then you can't stop saying it that way. And then when you're speaking about it with others, you might, uh, you might end up with uh, questions concerning, oh, it's just to those seven, right? It's kind of like when you first came into faith, do you remember certain things were being told to the disciples? And you're going, well, that's for them, right? That's not for me, that's to them. Or, oh, that's not my job, that's the pastor's job because he's the leader of the church, right? Uh, new uh, receivers of this message, these words that we're learning, these, these concepts that we're trying to teach ourselves. When you're young in this and you're still experiencing God for the first time and experiencing his word for the first time, you really do take things quite literal. And so I would just say, as a, just for your own benefit, that you come to recognize that this is a letter to the churches rather than letter to the seven churches. Just skip the seven part. But with seven, yes? Just a question. It's been a long time since I was at school. Mm -hmm. But aren't there seven continents? Okay. Yeah, somebody okay. said yes. Okay. Um, That's a good point. We have, um, we all came from somewhere. We came from grandparents, now, who would have settled North America? Who would have settled Europe, Asia, Australia? Uh, well, I, I just, and I, I can't even name all the continents right now, but. Yeah, uh, and your point is that there were seven and therefore the seven makes an application to the whole world. Yeah. Okay, got it. Yes, I'm with you. Can I add something about the seven? Yes. So go back to the Greek and you look at the article that's in front it. of it, kind of like how we use the, but they use articles for adding things. It indicates that this is a recognized group of things. Right. It was a recognized group, these churches. And basically what, what I was, you know, digging around was down at the bottom was that, that from Patmos, this was the trail that you would take. And then from here, when letters went out to the church, these seven then had churches they sent it to, and Good. they sent it to. So these were kind of like okay, the nucleus. Yeah, this is yes. an easy travel route. Yes, and then pass it on. Excellent. You did good job. Nice. That's and so see how that all works together. Very. You did good. So, Kristen, you're learning. Pretty soon you're going to come up here and teach. I am so excited. You know, this is this is the treasure I think though of doing inductive work is when you start asking the right questions, you start saying, "Well, what does that mean? And why did he say that?" Then you go deeper, and when you do go deeper, then you learn these little nuggets of truth that help you to found your understanding and see it on in a fuller way and to really reap the benefit of that right the seven churches now my question i i know we talked about it last week a little bit too was um why seven it is a number of perfection and when you're if you are hebrew mind you look at things quite literally and you and the, the concept for them of seven is something that's established in their understanding about God in particular. And not just the number seven, several of the numbers have significant uh, analogies or, or pictures, basically, in their mind. Seven is the number of perfection. So when you consider that and you see seven are mentioned, what he's giving you is a picture of the totality of all churches collectively 
somewhere in these seven messages, you're going to get the full picture of what the church is like and what their problems might be, and uh, also the admonitions to those that are doing well. And so you get this full picture, the whole story, right? All right. Yes, exactly. From Jerusalem to Judea and to the uttermost parts of the world. Exactly. That's exactly right. I agree. All, everything that was said here, those are all kind of the backdrop to why the seven, who the audience is that's receiving this, who the intended audience was, and that it doesn't just stop with the ones in that generation, nor does it stop with those seven churches specifically, but that it goes out globally, and that when God looks at it, he looks at it as the whole church in its totality, and not just in one point in time, but throughout all generations. And so he wrote this specifically. Now, why did we receive this message uh, at this point in history? We did last week a little bit of a timeline, right? What, why do you think now is the time that, that God determined was the correct time for us to get the story for the closing of, of history and the beginning of the millennial kingdom that's to come? And in comparison to what happened with Daniel, do you remember what we talked about last week about Daniel? At the close of Daniel's book, yes, go ahead, Amanda. Shut the book, don't worry about it now. Right. Right. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? It's not, it's not really doing. Um, I heard a sermon on that again this week. I'm, you know, I'm constantly online listening and trying to draw new insights. And they were talking about that. It, it was one of the ministry groups that, that, that focuses on prophecy. But they were saying how so many churches simply do not teach revelation in particular and that um the sadness really of that truth that they're not preparing the church because god gave it to us and he gave it specifically for this time in history where he told daniel way back in history close the book up daniel it, 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 those who have insight will understand and what we concluded about that, or at least what I concluded for sure about that, was when he said, those who have insight, who those? Yeah, those in that day when these things begin to under, uh, unfold and happen, they will have insight. They will understand, Daniel. For you, because you're all the way back at that time in Medo-Persia, at the beginning of the Medo-Persian Empire, you've got thousands of years to go, right? Lots of time between Medo-Persia and where we are. We're already, by the way, 2,000 years past the cross when this message was given. And so if you consider the, 
in perspective to where Daniel was to where we are, now God is saying, now this is for you. Now I'm going to give you more. Now I'm going to reveal the end time story. Um, one of the things that is said to us is that there is a blessing, correct? Did anybody come up with any insights about that subject where it says, blessed is he who reads and, these, and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it for the time is near so there again the time is near and that's why God is now giving it to us it, he didn't give this much up can you imagine if poor Daniel had received this as well it's I mean he had already received so much and he kept saying what huh I don't get it right I don't understand and the angel had to come and then Jesus came to him the man in linen came and spoke to him and, be, and began to explain but he kept having more and more questions and now he's saying to you and I, but you who read and hear and heed this, you are going to be blessed. Now, what do you know about the idea of telling us that you're going to be blessed if you read it? Does anybody know specifically what that really means in the Hebrew mind? Did anybody happen to come across anything on that? There you go. Good girl, Angie. Read out loud. Isn't that interesting? Because in the Hebrew uh, culture, when they read the word of God, they weren't talking about you going home and reading it privately. Did they have private Bibles in their homes? No, they didn't. They were still having pub, what they call public readings. So when he says read, he, he literally means to read out, out loud. So as I stand here and say to you, the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave to him to show to his bondservants the things which must soon take place, right? As I read that to you and I do it out loud and I'm teaching it out loud, this is what it's speaking of. As you, as you speak to your neighbors and to your friends where you live and to uh, maybe small groups that you're leading or when you're talking about it to your people at work and you're reading to them so that they can grab hold of these things that are being said. That's what it's talking about. Blessed is he who reads, reads it out loud so that people hear whose word? God's word, not my word. God's word. Uh-huh. Uh, I didn't give a whole sermon, but John MacArthur, I think, teaches the Revelation, and I'm pretty Yes. If you think this is bad, right. this is what's coming. Use this as your way yeah. to help Very good. Because in verse 7, he says, behold, he is coming. What did we say behold meant? Pay attention. Hear ye, hear ye. Right? This is, it's, a, it's like an action word or a, a um, it's a warning word. And that is exactly what Amanda just said. It is time for us to get our eyes off of the mess that we're seeing going on in America and start thinking about the mess that they're going to be living in one day if they don't receive Jesus Christ. And our job is to understand this well enough that we can give them warning with hope, not just warn them that it's going to happen and scare them to death, but say the hope is this, if you receive Jesus Christ now, you are going to be of those who are truly blessed, who are going to be caught up in, into heaven and will be with the Lord forever. You won't endure these things. This time is not for the church. It's for God reckoning with the unsaved world and specifically unsaved Israel to bring them into faith. 
right? All right, so, um, so blessed and read, it says, blessed is he who reads. It means to read out loud, just in case you don't know that. And I like that translation, Angie. Absolutely. That's right. Very good. Very good, Anita. Yes. That's right. That's right. Well, what we know, Annette, too, what, with, along with what you're saying there is um, the spirit realm, they're not God. They do not have the ability to read your thinking. Isn't that good to know? Right? They, yes, they only can observe and hear the things which are spoken. And so, uh, just so you know that, I mean, they are not God. God is God. You and I, when we die and go to heaven, we don't become God. We're not going to be all seeing and all knowing. We are still finite beings. We will simply be glorified at one point. We'll receive that new body. But we are never going to be God. Okay? And the spirits, the angels also are created beings and they have finite bodies and they are limited in the things that they do now. Are they powerful? Are they scary to you and I, if they show up, if God were to open this ceiling right now for us and show it to us, we would all faint dead on the floor probably. Right. Because it would be fearful to us. However, do we need to be fearful? No, because why? There you go. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. And so the spirit realm, however, can only hear what we speak out loud. And by speaking it out loud, then we're making a, first of all, we're making a declaration for many people to hear this. So the speaking it out loud, a lot of it has to do, I believe, with what follows chapter one, which is what? What follows chapter one? Chapter, chapter two and three. And what happens in chapter two? The letters to the church. He says, write to the angels of the church of Ephesus, right? And then later on in there, it says that he who has an ear to hear, let him hear. So this de declarative reading out loud is making a statement to, in particular, the spiritual leaders who would lead a congregation and they would do so by reading the word because in that day they had to read it. Not everyone came to, to work with their, their, with their phones, you know? Not and not that's true that is very true not everyone can also read so the reading it out loud so um just for giggles you might want to read it out loud while you're at home <laughs> and also they say that that's really a good um learning tool if you're a teacher who anybody in here is a teacher okay why is it good to read out loud Yes, yes. I am a kinetic learner too. So I, the more movement that's going on for me, the more I learn. And that's why often, even while I'm just right here, I learn things, you know, it's great because I'm moving and I'm writing and I'm talking and I'm engaging. I'm a verbal learner and I'm a kinetic learner. So by doing and by talking, that's how I learn. And um, I can sit down and do the homework, but my best learning comes when I do this. So, and
You are my very best student this morning. I want you to know because you led us right into the next segue. That is perfect. Why did it have to be written at this time in history? Because it needed to be after the church. Well, what happened or after the birthing of the church? What happened when Christ came? People entered into what covenant? The new covenant. And in the new covenant, what are we called? Yes, but he is our bridegroom and we are his bride, betrothed bride. We are waiting for the day when he returns, right? So now let's go back into Revelation. Let's read that very first one. It says, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bondservants. Now you did a word study on that word revelation. Tell me what that word means. Oh my goodness. That's a lot of words. Okay. Uh, 602. And the word is, I'm going to get the Greek on here. Apocalypsis. Right? And we, we hear that apocalypsis, apocalyptic a lot, right? So uh, apocalypsis. And that, by definition now, tell me, can you consolidate some of that and give me just the major points on that? Okay, laying bare or naked. Okay, so that I do think, although there's a lot more when you did your word study, I do think that's sufficient. Did anybody do any work on that particular word in, as far as commentary? Or did you hear any kind of sermons or lessons about it this week? One thing that I have is that in the New Testament, this word is used three different ways. Okay. It's either used to be the unveiling of something hidden, uh, insight into spiritual truth. Yes. Or the return of Christ. I love that. I, let's, let's write that down. I want to get all three of those. Number one is either what? Uh, unveiling of something hidden. Unveiling of something hidden. insight into spiritual truth or, the return of Christ. or number three, the return of Christ. And actually, actually all three are true and, and there is a specific meaning and it's used each time it's used. But in the book of Revelation, would you say that all three of these are true? Yeah. Um, but I do want to tell you something that I learned um, in another uh, pastor's teaching. He was talking about the tradition of, of, in the Hebrew mind again. And he was talking about this word revelation. It's actually this word apocalypsis, which means to unveil. And in its technical use, he says this is this would immediately transport the mind of a Hebrew person to a wedding. And he's literally saying this is Jesus unveiling his bridegroom, his his betrothed, and it's the and it's the unveiling of 
these things which must take place in order for the bride then to be returned with him as his bride, because now the marriage is consummated at his return and at our glorification. And then he places us and also Israel, who is also the bride of God, on the land, and that's this unveiling. It's the veil of the bride being re removed and exposed. And a verse came to my mind. I just want to read it to you because I thought this was really, it just came to me and I thought this has to be from the Lord. I want to read it to you. Uh, this is out of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, starting in verse 18. And it says, I consider that our present sufferings are not comparable to the glory that will be revealed in us. Now, this is just like what he said, this tribulation that John was going through. And he's, he's speaking about him being a fellow uh, partaker in the tribulation. And he, in here, in this writing, it says, consider that our present sufferings are not comparable to the glory that will re be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectation for the revelation of the sons of God. That's the unveiling of the bride, right? Now the creation was subjected to futility, not by its own will, but because of the one who subjected it in hope, because there's a hope that we're waiting for. And he says um, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until the present time. Not only that, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, but the hope that is seen is no hope at all. But he who hopes for what he who hopes for what he can already see? But if we hope for what we do not yet see, we wait for it patiently. That is 2 Corinthians 5, starting in 18. So <laughs> I thought, wow, that really kind of takes that greeting right there. The revelation of Jesus Christ. All of a sudden, I can't read it anymore without thinking of the veil coming up. The picture that he had was of a, of a Jewish woman with her veil. And her veils are not like ours, where they're very porous and see-through. And you see the beautiful face and the silhouette and the whole thing. Theirs is literally a cloth you cannot see through. And that veil then is lifted after the wedding ceremony is completed. You and I are right now betrothed. We, the, I have a DVD that's, unfortunately, it's 84 minutes long. It's a long one. But I would love to show it to you guys one day if you would be wanting to do that, you know, and stay around long enough to watch it. But it's, it's called Before the Wrath. And it, it tells you the whole picture of the Jewish wedding traditions and how we are in relationship to that in scripture how we're seen and it takes you right into this where it talks about the unveiling of the bride but it also lays down the premise before it how we are right now the betrothed of him and that we are now waiting for the day when the father will say to the son it's time because why no one knows the day nor the hour only the father and this is not negating Jesus as not being God and not knowing, 
but it's showing us God's submissive role as the son and being obedient to the father to wait on the appointed time. Isn't that beautiful? All right, let's move on. We're going to look, let's go back. So we did the revelation a little bit out of order, but let's go back and look at the introduction of this book because I want you to see the place and the purpose for chapter one in its grammatical layout, okay? There's, there's a lot of ways to look at this. We did the context setting already. So this time I want to do the grammatical layout. What I want you to be able to do is outline your chapter. Most, um, most of my studies, I like to take the, the students through outlining each of the chapters as we do them in the, like the smaller letters, like Second Timothy or whatever. We go through, and we, I show you how to do that and how to get your titles. In a historical record, you look at it slightly different because you're looking at people, places, and events more than you are subjects, per se. In the opening of Revelation, though, this is an actual, it's like, did you guys ever take um, classes in school where they taught you how to write proper letters? Like, you have to have an opening statement that kind of explains all that you're going to be talking about and that it, it, you have each of the pieces in between at the end you have a closing well this is what chapter one of revelation does for us it gives us the outline of how this book is is um, addressed to us how it's introduced to us because the totality of revelation is so major and it's so full of imagery that you really can get lost in it but this book starts us out by really giving us the authority of the book, the purpose of the book, the flow of the book, okay? So let's go back and, and look at this. Really? I, I have a screenshot of it, and it said Corinthians. Oh, my God. You know what? That makes sense to me now that you've said that. Romans 8. Romans 8, 18. I look, well, I, what's really sad, I can show you my screenshot of it, and it says 2 Corinthians 5. What? Nothing like that in there. Okay, well, thank you for the correction. That is so weird because I got it right off my computer. Yeah. I've heard of it, but I've never been able to get it's in there. It's a subscription-based thing, like a Netflix or whatever, but it's all basically Christian movies. Cool. But you do have to purchase your an app to get into. Right. Yeah. Okay. That's very cool. Okay. All right. Okay. So let's be, let's begin an outline of this book because I think you're going to find this very helpful to. Um, to your understanding of this book. Now, we have in, um, in verses one to three, an introduction. Do you see what's going on there in one to three? The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bondservants the things which must soon take place. And he sent and he communicated by his angel to his bondservant, John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. Then you get to the next portion, and it says, John. 
to the seven churches. So you can see a natural break there, correct? When you consider verses one through three, what is it really introducing to us? Yeah, very good. It, this, this is an introduction of the book itself. It's telling you what this book is, where it came from, uh, what it's going to be talking about, what's going to be entailed in it. But it's in a, if you can imagine, we only had three verses for Revelation, that would be really insufficient, <laughs> right? But it gives you a, 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 like an overview caption of what's going to happen after those three verses. So one through three is an introduction. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yes. From God. Absolutely. So it lets us know what the book is about, where we got the book, right? And why the book was given to us. It was given by God to Jesus, but for the bond servants. Why? Because there are things that are going to soon take place and the time is near. And therefore, you see the urgency, you see the occasion, you see the why, the who, right? So this introduction is very thorough in verses one through three. And if you can see this, the, gra the grammatical flow of the paragraphs in this chapter one, you start to see a better purpose for it all in, in its totality. You also get to see kind of where these paragraphs break, what it is that's being said in those paragraphs. What is the purpose of that first paragraph? Now, what's the purpose of the second paragraph? What do you see in the second paragraph? In verses four, four to eight. There you go. In it, although John does introduce himself, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, but then what does he expound on? What is the bulk of the information in there? It, he talks about, he says, grace and peace to you. And then how does, who does he tell you the grace and peace comes from? From God, from the spirit and from Christ. And so he tells you where this letter is coming from. So again, it's a, a lot like what was just said about in chapter, in verses one through three, where it's giving you an introduction of the source of the book. But now it also tells you again, more thoroughly who that source is, God, but it's not just God, it's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Not in that order. Mix them up a little bit, right? Okay, so he says in that, it's basically, he's giving you God's greeting. If you're writing a letter, you always have a greeting, dear sir, right? So in this case, you have a greeting from God. It's, this greeting is grace and peace. To you from one God to the seven spirits and three uh, Jesus. And in that greeting, what is the emphasis that he makes in there? Because he makes a bold emphasis statement. 
well, yeah, he gives some time. He tells you that it's from Jesus, and then he goes on to give you lots of definitions about Jesus, right? But does he give you a statement in there about why he's writing this? Yes. Behold, Jesus is coming. So in his greeting, he greets you. This is God's greeting. And in God's greeting, he is extending you grace and peace. And he's saying, behold, Jesus is coming. This is the major emphasis in his greeting to them. Behold, Jesus is coming. And you know that's the major emphasis of his greeting, because what is the major emphasis of information that's given to you in those verses? Who gets covered the most? God? No, right, Jesus. Although God is mentioned, the Spirit is mentioned, but Jesus is expounded on, right, in those, in those uh, references. Um, he says about uh, that to us that Jesus, he has already told us that Jesus is coming. Behold, he's coming, but he says he's coming soon. What did you learn about that word soon when you did your word study? It is never used with verbs of motion. It doesn't indicate direction. I love that. I did not get that one. I want that one word for word again. Now tell me that again. Okay. So there's a preposition before the word whatever soon is translated at the Greek. Okay. The tacos, the T-A-C-H-O. Uh-huh. Before that word is E-N. When E-N is before that Greek word. Which. In the, in the English, it's the word which. Which soon. Mu so which that, must soon take place, when okay? When is used in Greek with that word, it denotes um, a fixed position in time, place, or space. And it is not used with verbs of motion. So, and it doesn't indicate direction. Oh, I love that. A fixed time and place. Oh my gosh, this is so good. I love this because... What is it that we saw, particularly when we did our Daniel study over and over about... Uh, the time that was going to be coming. It was the appointed time. I love this. This is absolutely it, uh, lovely. And the other reason it's so good is because if you consider the word soon in English, we mean soon like in a minute, right? And when was this said? 2,000 years ago. So soon is obviously not soon from the perspective of quickness, right? It's Yes. Yes. And a point of time. Um, and the Lord is a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. That's right. Okay. And so with him, although, it, uh, and I actually put that in my notes, a time is, is computed by God. The Lord is not slow about his promises, right? In second Peter. So if God is not slow and he obviously doesn't mean soon as in quickly, what he really means is when it happens, it's going to appear in a sudden moment. Now, does that fit what we know about scripture? Oh, yeah. He says, suddenly he will appear. So it's more about the concept of suddenness when it does take place and the fact that it's in a fixed time and place. And what was the rest of that, Kristen? Um, not used with verb motion. And it does not indicate Yeah. 
And what is that number? Okay. Yay. Oh, the E-N is 1722. And then what is, but tacos is 5034. Okay, so that's the tacos. And this is the E-N in tacos. So in a way, it sounds to me like it needs to be a phrase. It needs to be when you are considering it in our mind, and they would have in their mind, in taco, would have been a, 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 a consolidated together for an understanding of it. Otherwise, it could be soon, like quick, but it isn't quick, obviously, because it's been 2000 years. So we know that that understanding is an error because it doesn't make sense. It has to mean something else. This is the part about inductive Bible study that is so fun is you start to reason things through and go, well, it, it can't mean soon as in quickly because it hasn't been quickly. It has to mean something else. And I love that. I wish I had, I didn't catch that. I didn't catch that one. I love that. I'm going to put that one on my notes when I send it out for you guys to have it. I need a picture of it so I don't lose it. <laughs> okay, very, very good. Okay, so he says, behold, he is coming soon. Uh, we also see this repeated, by the way, over and over in the scripture. We're going to see, we see it here in 1-7 also. We saw the time is near, right, up in verse 3, I think it was. We we're going to see it in chapter 2 and chapter 3 and all the way through in 22, it's mentioned like three times when we did our work last week on that. So this, this idea of soon obviously doesn't mean soon quickly. It does mean soon at a fixed time, an appointed time, at the appointed time. And when it occurs at the appointed time, it will be sudden, right? Okay, so I think I might put that word sudden in here um, also. Okay, very good. That was a nice learning curve there. Thank you. Okay, now let's go on to 9 through 11. We've, we've covered 4 to 8, 9 to 11 for outline. This is introduction. This is God's greeting. Now we're looking in 9 to 11. What? What's the major subject going on starting in chapter 9 through 11? It's telling us about John, isn't it? So the focus there is about John. And so in a way, up here it introduced the book. And here there was the greeting from God. And now what's it doing about John? It, say that again. Yes. And when it's, it's telling us how it's being delivered to them and how it's going to circulate. But it also tells us about John something that I think is significant and important to the reading of this book. If you receive a letter like this, what is, or you and I do this all the time. When we pick up a book to read a book, what do we do? What is the first thing we want, we should do as a Christian if we're going to be looking at something that is supposed to Look at the author. You want to know who that author is, right? So this book is introducing the author to us. What is it telling us about the author? Very good, good. Yes, it gives you, it, it validates and it confirms and it gives him authority. It gives him um, also the place in the, in, within the church itself because he says, I am your what? And, and before that, I am your brother, right? I'm your brother. 
And so the first thing he establishes about himself is that he is, he is a Christian, right? That he is, he is in fellowship with them, that he, he belongs within their community. Yes. <laughs> it kind of takes you back to what Diane did at the beginning where she was saying, yeah, they dipped him in oil and they put him out on the island. They expected him to die, but he didn't. Why not? Because the firsthand eyewitness is the best authority that you can get to receive something from. Um, and so in this case, we see John is being introduced to them. So we had an introduction to the book, but now we have an introduction to the author. Or to the writer, right? To the one who is writing this book, the one who's told to write this book, as a matter of fact. Because as it closes, uh, verse 11, he says to him very clearly, write in a book what you see and send it. So he's given these clear instructions. So if you were to, to be a member of a church and didn't know John, although I find it hard to believe in, in this circuit that they wouldn't know him, because he had been living at Ephesus. He had been charged to watch care over uh, the mother of Jesus at the cross. And it is historically recorded that he was in Ephesus. As a matter of fact, his, his tomb is there. I've been to it. And so John was buried there. Mary was buried there. This is where he ministered. He worked out of Ephesus, or, or the, the church of Ephesus, right? And so John is being credentialed, however. He's being told to write this and send it. And if you receive a letter from somebody, what if you didn't know them? You would want to know something about them, right? And so he's saying, not only is this who I am, but this is who told me to send you this letter which gets back to what he's saying about it's Jesus that he's connected to and he's an eyewitness of Jesus and this Jesus told him specifically to write it, which I think is really cool. So the things that we learn about him, he's a brother and a fellow partaker in tribulation. Um, he received the revelation. Did anybody uh, do any work about that being there on, in the spirit on the Lord's day? Yeah, isn't it interesting that, that it would stick out to you that he's in the spirit and he's on the Lord's day. Let's just try to reason this through a little bit. We know this is the early church, and the early church was not meeting on Sunday yet, correct? We see in Hebrews later that there had to be a distinction made that this was a process that eventually we got our day of Sunday of worship, but initially it was the Sabbath day because that was given by God to, to the Jewish nation. Okay, so now he's saying on the Lord's day. Now, what do you think he meant about it being the Lord's day. So it had, say it again. It, um, 
Yes, the resurrection day, the day that was the Lord's, it was the day that the Lord resurrected, would have been the, it would have been the first day of the week, Sunday, more than likely, right? Now, I wouldn't, I wouldn't follow the sword on that one, but I do think it's really interesting. And I heard the sermon on this this week, and he was talking about on the Lord's day. And he says he was how in the spirit, meaning what? Worshiping that there was a moment of worship and that um, there was literally a falling of the spirit upon him in that moment, obviously, because what happened? He had this vision, and God revealed, and Jesus appeared and started speaking to him. So this was someone who, in the spirit, on the Lord's day. I, I think it's interesting that this is kind of the first mention about a specific day. If he meant the Sabbath, the Hebrew would have said the Sabbath. It doesn't say the Sabbath. It says the Lord's day. So it meant something different than the Sabbath. And the Lord's day is the day that we understand it to be the day that the Lord resurrected right on the third day of the uh after his crucifixion so he's in the spirit on the lord's day so he received the revelation um on the lord's day and while in the spirit that's pretty cool and so this is, again, more introduction about who John is, how he received this letter, because he's going to send this letter out to everybody, and everybody wants to know, who is this guy that's sending me this letter? What is this book about? Who, who wrote this book? I want to know who the author is before I start trusting it. And so they're, they're getting credentialing on John as they go into this. And then it says to him, Jesus gave that to him, Right? the message gave it to him for them, right? He says specifically, um, I was in the spirit on the Lord saying, I heard behind me a loud voice. Now, in this case, what we now know from chapter one verses, verse one is that the progression here that is that God gave it to Jesus, who gave it to his angel, who gave it to John. So here, here we see the angel speaking. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet. We covered that last week saying, write it in a book and send it to the seven churches. So now they know that it was actually ordered. By the way, that word to write, did anybody look at that word a little bit? When it said to write, it's actually an imperative. It's like a command. It's not like if you get to it, if you feel like it, when you're in the mood. No, it's do it now. It's a command. So he's saying, write it in a book, what you see, and send it to the seven churches. So in this case, we see God to Jesus, and Jesus gave it to the angel, and they've given it to him, John, for them, specifically. So that is your introduction to your author. Who, who is your author? And if you are a Christian and you pick up any book, this is what you should be doing. If you don't know anything about it, stand there with your phone and Google that man's name. Get a little write-up on a bio on him. What churches are, is he affiliated? What ministries is he affiliated with? Because you want to be careful that you're not reading stuff that subtly puts within the context of it... Um, maybe even false doctrines, right? 
or doctrines that are denominationally bent to in a place where you know you don't want to go. All right. All right. So that's really good, right? Interesting. Now we're going to look at 12 to 16. You could actually go all the way down from 12 down to 18. I think I'm going to put it that way. 12 to 18. Um, it, it can be either way. It's not locked in really hard and fast. What are, what's shown to us in 12 to 18? The vision itself, what John saw, right? It's what John saw, and that was Jesus, what John saw. So basically, if it's an introduction to the book, God's greeting to us, our introduction to the writer, and what it was that John saw, which was Jesus. Lots of Jesus that we are, we've read about Yes, and what does it specifically uh, tell us was what Jesus was doing? When he first sees Jesus, where does he see him? Yes, standing in the middle of seven golden lampstands, which are the churches. Now, that visualization of him standing in the middle of the, of the churches then, what does that tell you? Um, seven. Uh, no, it's not seven. Um, I heard him say. And I saw him in, in the middle. Okay, not standing. Sorry. Okay. Jesus in the middle. He have to be standing, or he's floating, or he's laying, or he's sitting. And the robe goes to the feet. So yeah, it's a, you're right. The word doesn't say standing. You're right, but obviously he's if he's not standing on the ground, he's floating in. in but he's in the middle of them, so they'd have to be floating too. Right. Right. And it's specifically saying that they are depicted. Remember, what kind of a book are we in? Prophetic. It's imagery, right? And so this is an image that's being given to John, the writer of this, so that he has a concept or an understanding. What is the purpose for these images that he's describing to us? Why would John tell us, I saw him in the midst of the lampstands? What does that convey to us? He's the center. Yeah. Say it again. He's within the believer. Yes. He's in the midst of the believing congregation. He's. Yes. And he, okay. So if, so the, what is really trying to be told to us there then is about the fellowship that he has with us, the, and the presence that he has with us as the church, correct? Very interesting. I do know that, you know, the, the major thing that we always, you know, in our minds convey is by the spirit, God is with us. And he's within each one of us individually. But in this vision, it's also showing us that literally he is in our presence. Oh, this goes back to Daniel. Do you remember those 
the spiritual warfare that took place in the Daniel writing, that, that with the things that were going on in the heavenly realm that we weren't looking at it, the king of Persia and the king of, well, I can't remember what the other ones were, but then they're fighting amongst one another. And these things are happening in the heavenly realm. And, but upon the earth, what else is happening? These other things that Daniel was actually living through or was seeing that would take place one day. And so what we understand then is um, the one angel who had to leave and then come, and we came to see this as being Jesus, right? It wasn't teaching us that he was weak and couldn't handle it on his own. And so he had to wait for Michael to show up before he could leave to talk to Daniel. But it showed what it was trying to convey to us is the spiritual warfare that was going on. It was just opening that, that window, that veil that right now stands between us and the heavenly realm and the spiritual realm. And it was unveiling that just a peak of it in the book of Daniel so that we could understand there's spiritual warfare that goes on on behalf of the people on this earth and, and particularly for the church of God on this earth. And so that is kind of the same thing here. We see Jesus in the middle of the golden lampstands. So you can make little flames, right? All the way around him. One, two, three, four, five, six. Oh, I got to have another one. Seven. So the seven lampstands, and he's in the middle of it. And the picture there then is a fellowship of presence, of protection, of power, of whatever other thing you can think of. Yes, that's a good one. There I am in the midst of them. That's right. That's correct. Yep. Okay. So what John saw, we saw, he saw Jesus. He saw Jesus in the, in the middle of the seven golden lampstands. 17 to 20 then, or actually 19 to 20 is how I broke it up now. And in the conclusion, what do we see about this book that we need to know in the outline of it? What the three sections are. Yeah. What those three sections are and what John was told to write correct? I'm, I'm telling you about who John is, and I'm telling you about what John saw. Now I'm going to tell you what John was told to write to you, okay? So it's what John was told. And what was he told to write? Yep. What he saw and what will take place. Oh, I missed one. What he saw. What is. Yeah. What is and what will take place. Yes. Yeah. So those are the three things. One, two, three things that he was told to write. And he said when he was told to write. He was told, write, he was told, send it. Right. And so he can, yes. And if you're looking at the flow of chapter one, it kind of shows you the purpose of chapter one, though. The, why is it there? It's there to introduce to us this book. And it gives us the greeting that, that it 
literally is from God, right? That it's an introduction about who this author is, or the writer is rather, what it was that John saw and what John was told to do with what he wrote. And so it gives you, a, I think it's a very nice outline though, once you kind of look at it grammatically for an outline. It, it, I think it kind of anchors in place for you what it is, the, the progression of thought in it. It has a very nice, concise progression, okay? All right, so that helps us know the outline. And I think that layers on top of what we did last week in our introduction to context setting. So the content, this, to me, this actually still lays in the area of context setting since so you get the flow of this and what chapter one is all about. Okay, it gives you tons of information. Chapter one did this. It tells us whose message it is. It's God's to Jesus, to us, right? What the main message is. What is the main message? Behold, Jesus is coming. That's the main message. Even though he's told to write all kinds of things, but he's, what is the main message of it? Jesus is coming, right? Why this message now? The time is near. Who the message, uh, who the messenger is, John, right? Who's a bond servant and a fellow partaker in tribulation. Who the message is for, the churches and the bond servants, and what the message entails. And that's when you get into the three, the three segments there in, chap in chapter 1, verse 19. Write the things that John saw, the things which are, and the things which will take place after these things. Very good. Yeah? I know. Exactly. Right, right, right. Okay. So we did really good. Now let's talk about that word communicated because that also came to us in the opening of this where he said the, the things which were communicated. What does it mean communicated? Okay. To give a sign, to show, to indicate. It, the idea of prediction may, falls in line then with the word prophecy, right? The idea of being a, it being a prophecy. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. To uh, make known or to make clear. And if you look at the, uh, the opening of it being the revelation, being the unveiling, then to idea of he communicated it by unveiling it, he made it clear. Very cool. Okay. The other thing is with this particular uh, writing, there's a blessing that's promised to us. So we looked at that word blessed. And that was in 1-3. Did you all get 3107? Makarios. I wanted to talk on this a little bit because just the definition isn't sufficient in a way. Because blessed means can be 
you said to be supremely blessed. There you go. Fortunate, well off, happy. Okay. I felt like, in a way, I wish they had had it in the in the definition part. But there is a book in the Bible that actually covers this subject of being blessed, and it's the major theme. And it gives you the balance of the word, what it really means to be blessed. Because in a way, there's kind of two blessings you can think of, right? You can be blessed in what way? Materially. Materially, physically in this life, or you can be spiritually blessed. Guess what book that is? Ephesians, the letter to the church of Ephesus. He's, and the theme of that book is a double theme. It's blessed in him to walk in him. And if you're blessed in him with every spiritual blessing, meaning the spiritual relationship that you have with God, right? But then you are blessed so that you walk in him. And in the walking in him, you're blessed again. Because you're blessed by, through your obedience. You're blessed through the relationships that you develop because of walking correctly. In other words, you're not lying, stealing, cheating, right? Committing acts that you shouldn't. Instead, you're walking in a manner that's worthy of your calling. And in doing that, you glorify God and he blesses the life that you live. This is a conversation I've had over and over with certain people in my life that have said, look, just taste and see that the Lord is good. If you just start by doing the things that God says, even if you don't believe it up front, watch and see that your life is not blessed when you do it God's way. So there is a physical blessing in this life, but there's the spiritual blessing on the other side. And both are true. And he literally says, those who read, hear, and heed, heeding is a physical action. It's in this physical life, right? But, and the hearing and the believing of it has to do with the spiritual quality of it. So you get spiritually blessed and you get physically blessed. So this blessing, and I'm going to put on here one spiritual, which is the first and most one. And then number two is the, is the present tense, or I, I guess I'll just put physical, physical, this life. Yes, exactly, exactly. You can, and that's why I say there's really two sides to the, the subject matter of being blessed. It talks about the salvation, the being caught up, being caught out of, being saved from things. But then there is also the, the physical blessing because what he's doing is he's directing the church right now. While you're waiting for this blessed hope, while you're waiting for the promise of what God says is coming, you're to be doing something. You're not supposed to be sitting and just going, oh yeah, I know that's going to happen. But rather, there's a, to be an action on our part, which is the heed part. You're blessed if you read it, you hear it, and you heed it. And the heeding is action in this present world. So it covers both sides of that picture. And uh, Amanda, you're right. In, in uh, 14, 13, 16, 15, 19, 9, 26, 22, 7, and also 22, 14, that word blessed is used over and over in Revelation. Do you guys want those again? Yes. Blessed are they 
Okay, I hadn't got there, but that's exactly right. Because what you are doing is reading out of the promises to the churches for their obedience and in their faith walk with Christ. And if you are, and in that case, he uses, instead of the word blessed, he uses the word overcomers. To the overcomer, and then all these promises are given. And those are blessings. There's no doubt about it. The word blessed is not used, but they are blessings, right? And we're, we're getting ready. I'm going to say we're fixing to because I'm a Texan almost now, right? We're fixing to get into chapters two and three. And in that, we are going to see the being blessed quality to the church, which is present age. The things which are. So you're blessed. It's twofold. It's your spiritual blessing and it's your physical blessing in this world right? Okay. Um, now, now I guess we're ready. I think we covered all the keywords that you looked up by order <laughs> in your homework, correct? Okay. Now what I want to do is look at this, at your keyword list, because this was really fun to do, I thought. We had, a, we had keyword lists that we were to do particularly on the Trinity, right? Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So let's start with God first because it's a pretty short list out of this book. And in particular, we see this in 1-4, although you get some information in 1-1 one, one, that he, is, he tells John to, or yeah, he tells Jesus to tell John, you get that, that order of, of how the word came to us, right? But specifically when the information is given to us about who God is and how he portrays himself in this book, right? It's seen in 1.4. And he says it's from him. And how does he describe himself? Who is, who was, who is to come. Now this was fun. Last week, I told you I had learned something new, and it was about the connection of the word prophecy, the word book, and then went into chapter 5, and I see the scroll that's given to Jesus, and, it, and he opens it, and that's the book, and I hadn't seen that before, that, that those are all the book, right, that, that he's to write, and the copy of it, the original, is in the heavenly, which Jesus receives from the Father, and he opens that book, right? Um, well, so that was what I learned last week. Well, this week I learned something new too about this phrase here. Did anybody do any research on this? Because I'd love it if any, someone else also picked up on something. When you, when you made your list, I know that she didn't tell you going and do word studies on everything, but we talked about it last week and I had said to you, remember, God doesn't give titles or names for himself or identifying markers about himself without there being a specific purpose that it reveals something to us about him, right? And so if you had time, I was hoping you did word studies. Um, I did all these word studies on these subjects that, were, that we looked at, all the names that were given to us for, about God and Jesus. And in the doing of that, <clears throat> I came across, let me see if I can find it, specifically this information about this. Did anybody else do it? Uh-uh. Okay, well... You're in for a treat. Let me see if I can find my sheet. Hold on. Because it's, it's more detailed in my homework than what I put on my list here. Here it is. Okay, my original homework on 
this is just God and G Jesus is a whole nother sheet all by himself. But I got uh, God and the Holy Spirit on this one. And in between, I did word studies on what I was learning. Well, there was really only a very short amount, right, of information about God. And then it went on to Jesus. So in this one, what it tells us, though, is this, this phrase, him who is, who was, and is to come. Let me tell you what I learned about this. Um, the Father is him which is and which was and which is to come. This is a phrase of the unspeakable name of God. This is the I am statement. In the, it, this is how the Hebrew reads that this would be the I am of God. I love that. So let's just put this on here, um, the I am. And when we speak about the I am, now tell me what you know about the I am. When did God use that first? At the birthing of the nation of Israel, when he began to have relationship with them again after their 460 years in their captivity, right? And now they're coming out of Egypt where they've been inundated with a false god worship systems. And now when Moses was told, go take my people out, he said, well, who do I say that sent me? It's kind of like here, who said to you, write this book to us, the church? Well, it's John, and this is what you need to know about John. And who's the source of it? It's God, and this is what you need to know about God. Here he goes, it, he, at, when he says this about himself, the greeting, grace and peace to you from God, who is who was and who is to come, this is a phrase, the I am. I am that I am, okay? Then he, so that's how to Exodus 3.14, if you want to have that. Let me put that up here. Exodus 3.14 is one place where you see that. Now, who else has the I am title? Jesus does also. Did you see that later? The same phrase, who is, who was, who is to come, is used when Jesus is being described. Once you move into that next segment, remember, let's see if I can pull it out here. Hold on. That's Jesus because it hasn't changed your, the flow of thought and it continues beyond it. Did you see your crosses all through here? And then the crosses keep going all the way through. We haven't gone back to God the Father. This is the subject of Jesus. And you go on over here and he's told him to write. And then he goes on and he says, I turned to see him. What did he see? Jesus again. So these are all Jesus statements. The first time it's mentioned, it's God the Father, the I am. And the second time it's mentioned, it's Jesus, the I am. That's exactly right. That's what I was asking you. Where does he say this? I am, I am, and I am the bread of life, and I am the door, and I am the, and when he, when they turned to them to answer their question, who are you? He says, I am. And they fell down and worshiped the soldiers when they saw him. They fell and worshiped because they understood what he was saying. I am. And this is all through the gospel of John, the I am statement, the, that he is the I am. Okay, so I just found this very exciting when he said the I am. And he said, he's, this is the absolute and unchangeable one. That's what that title I am means. It's the self-existing one. The I am. I exist. Right? Then he says, so the one who is, is the Septuagint translation of Exodus 3.14. I am the I am. I am hath said, 
uh, hath sent me to you. So that was uh, Moses being told. Now, the one who was. This is very interesting because these first two parts right here, who is and who was, are actually a clause that form a single phrase. They would not be separated from one another. Okay? So it says here, this forms one clause in the Hebrew language. The Greek has no imperfect principle so that the finite verb is used, which is, which was, form one clause. Okay? To be balanced against that which is to come. Now, this is really cool because it alludes then to God who will come. Now, how does God come? When, when, is, when is he coming to this earth? And who does it? When Jesus comes. So what is he doing when he makes this statement, who is, who was, the I am, and the one who is to come? But yet it's all identifying who? God the Father. And what is it saying to you about it? Let me read this, what it says here. The one who is to come, the dominant concept in the title is that of immutability, that, that unchanging, right? The unchangingness of God and the immutability. Further, it expresses his permanent covenant relationship to his people, which we know his coming is a fulfillment of relationship with, with, uh, it, to fulfill the covenant promises, right? Hence is to be explained in accordance with the second coming of the Son, that's chapter 1, verse 7, and chapter 22, verse 20. Those are the references that he gives. It is often applied to the Son, 1 John 3, 5 is an example, but also the Gospel of John is tons of them. And so throughout this book, the Son does nothing apart from the Father. What does 1 John say to us over and over and over? I do what the Father tells me to do. I speak what the Father tells me to speak, right? I and the Father are one, right? And I pray that you be one as we are one. So if you go back to the Gospel of John and read through there, the two are are like glue, although they have distinctive roles. You see, this, this subject of the Trinity is really, it's a concept that we just have a hard time, we grapple with it. But just try to take in the things that you can. Take in the fact that what God is saying is, we have distinctive roles, but we are one. And here he's saying the I am, who is and who was, but also who is to come. And how does he come? through Jesus is coming. So he's making an allusion to the fact that when he comes, who is Jesus? God incarnate. Isn't that cool? So I just thought this was so exciting when I learned this. I'm going, oh my goodness, this is God, the father, the I am, who's writing this. And he's telling you, he says, I am the one who is and who was, but I am to come. And I come through my son, Jesus Christ. And that's how he's identified here. 15 minutes. Okay. Well, we're going to be okay. Okay. And then he says, and also to also the spirit, but he calls it the seven spirits. Now, if you've clearly identified the first one as the I am, God, and you clearly identify the next one that follows it, Jesus, who is the one in the middle when he refers to the seven spirits? Who does it have to be? If it's a triune, it has to be the Holy Spirit. has to be. By conclusion, by logic, right? Now, 
do we totally understand why he uses it? Well, I think I could explain it probably a little bit, and I'm not a genius, and I'm certainly no great theologian, but if you're in a book of prophecy, which is all imagery, would it not make sense that he could use an, uh, an uh, imagery reference like, the word, like seven to describe the spirit? What does seven represent? We've already talked about it. Perfection, Perfection completion, fullness, wholeness, right? And so if, if the Holy Spirit is represented in this way, the perfection, the wholeness, the completeness, would that be a title God's Holy Spirit could hold? Yes, the Father holds that title. He's completeness, he's perfection. The Holy Spirit also, because who is the Spirit? He's God. <laughs> so the idea that it's seven spirits. Uh, can I have a drink of water? I yeah, can't. They're asking, I'm sorry. I can't, say, I can't reach the sink. Oh, she's not talking to that's okay i thought it was some somebody can't reach their sink <laughs> that's what she said okay <laughs> but the seven spirits then is the holy spirit it's from the seven spirits and where are they which are before his throne whose throne you're going up to god the father uh-huh so when i was doing my um that led to isaiah eleven twelve, where it lists seven yes the sevenfold spirit of god yeah. yes that's good okay let's put that up here isaiah what Isaiah 11, 2 in the Old Testament. Now, this brings up a really good point, Kristen, because one of the things that uh, I've been hearing on a regular basis through all the different things I've been listening to is how anything that you see going on in the New Testament is validated in the Old. It's already been told to us in some form or fashion. And these qualities in particular about who God is are already stated very clearly for us in the Old Testament. So in the New Testament, although it is a new phrase to call the Holy Spirit the seven spirits before his throne, it's not a phrase used anywhere else, but it still is represented for us in the Old Testament. Isaiah is the, is the good example of this. Isaiah eleven two, the sevenfold spirit of God, and it shows his qualities. Right? Did you have a list of those qualities? It's um, spirit of the Lord, spirit of wisdom, spirit of understanding, spirit of counsel, spirit of strength, spirit of knowledge, and spirit of fear of the Lord. Wow. Isn't that awesome? Go look that one up and make that list for the seven-fold uh, spirit of God because that's going to explain to you why would he be called the seven spirits who are before his throne? It's these seven, the, these seven qualities of, of the Holy Spirit. Isn't that cool? Um, now, the other thing is when you did your, a word study or if you did a word study on the word spirit, it simply means pneuma, right? And there are like uh, one, two, three, four, five. There are like six options for interpretation on it. Let me just tell you what they are. The human spirit. Are we talking about that? No. Eliminate. Evil spirit. Are we talking about that? No. Nope. Eliminate. Movement of air. No, not that one. Eliminate. The wind. No, it's not the wind blowing. A breath of the nostril or the mouth. Nope, not that one. So what, what's left? The Holy Spirit. So if you look at 
the possibilities for pneuma, which is the word here, spirits, pneuma. Let me just write that up here. Um, it's number 4151 and it's P-N-E-U-M-A. And there are like, pardon? Like pneumonia, there you go. That's not good, is it? But it has to do with the lungs and breath. Uh, one, two, three, four, five. So there are six possibilities for uh, interpretation of what pneuma is. And if you're talking about seven pneumas before the throne of God, by process of elimination, you, you come to it, the only possibility is Holy Spirit. So there's another inductive process that you could use for making a choice on which interpretation it is or which definition it is. You just have to do it by process of elimination. Right. Just like, yes, just like God, who is the one who exists and is omnipresent, right? Just like Jesus, who is in the middle of the candlesticks. He's here. He's amongst us. He's with us. But the spirit is in us, right? And abides with us. He's our seal of until the day of redemption. As, yes, at the... Yes. Okay, now let me see how much time we have left. About five minutes. It's not going to give us much time. But one of the things then that you would have done next is Jesus. Now, I'm not going to do the list on the board because I want to save time. And you guys have your own list, right? Okay, so what are the things that we see about who Jesus is? Is one list, but then there's also a list about... Um, what Jesus's appearance is like. Those should have really been separated. I hope you did that. Um, but if not, you could do it later maybe and fix it. But we see, we see Jesus, he's defined as the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth, him who loves us and re released us from our sins by his blood. He who is coming with the clouds, the Alpha and the Omega, the Lord God who is and who was and who is to come in verse 8, the Almighty in 8, the one like a son of man in 13, I am the first and the last in 17, I am the living one, and I was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore. Now, if you weren't sure if that flow of thought there was all Jesus, when you hit 18 and 19 in particular, because the flow has not stopped, he's not reiterated and let you know that he's speaking about a new uh, subject person, you can see that when he gets there, he says, look, I was dead and now I'm alive forevermore. So who are you still speaking of? Jesus. So when I marked my sheet, and you can do this for yourself if it will be helpful to you, I marked a red box, just lightly colored in here, the whole section where it's speaking about Jesus, then it talks about John and his instructions, but then on the back, I colored it in again in red, just so that my eye would capture all those verses, starting at verse 13, all the way through verse 18, are descriptive words that should have been on your list about Jesus, who Jesus is, okay? Same thing in the front. I, it, uh, you start in verse 4 with God the Father, the I am, that phrase, 
the I am who is and who was and who is to come and also the seven spirits who is the Holy Spirit and then it follows and then it puts Jesus last which is interesting because usually when you have a list about God it's God the Father God the Son and God the Holy Spirit right but this time it's God the Father God the Spirit and God Jesus and the why because then after the last statement about Jesus all these um, definitive uh, qualifiers are all on Jesus and that continues over onto the back it never does revert back to God the Father or to the Holy Spirit but continues on about Jesus so who does that tell you is the major subject in our book Jesus and so when the statement behold Jesus is coming now becomes your major subject because he is your major subject and therefore, you now know what your book subject is about. It's about his coming. I think it's interesting, too, that when John wrote it for the churches of that day, which were mostly Jews, you know, kind of Greek, but it explains the meaning. You know, the, the, the one coming with the cross to redeem to the nation of days. Yes. Yes. I'm really glad you brought that up, Kathy, because we didn't have time to do it in our classroom here. And those of you who did not do Daniel, go back. Uh, is it Daniel chapter 10, right? If you go back to Daniel chapter 10, it introduces the man in linen and it gives you all the same exact identifying qualifiers when it comes to his appearance. Let's see. Let me find that list. What he saw, one like a son of man, exactly what's said in Daniel, one like a son of man. That word like again, why does it say like? Why is Jesus like a son of man and why are you and I actually son of man? When the reference title is given, we are called son of man. But when Jesus is called son of man, he's one like a son of man. There you go. He holds our form, but not our sin nature. Very good way to put that because he's not a human he's God in flesh and he retains his deity I cannot stress that to you enough I cannot tell you how many times I've been in Bible studies where they talk about Jesus when he's in his human flesh and they want to put him as a, just a man that he hasn't got the qualities of omniscience of all knowingness but how do you explain how he knew what was going on with the woman at the well Right? How do you? How does he explain that he knew about? Anybody's who was the disciple sitting under a tree and I saw you? Right? Yes, Nathaniel. Thank you. God in flesh does not re, um, absolve himself of his deity when he becomes flesh. He simply takes on flesh, and he submits to the Father in it and walks in it. Okay, so super important. So one like a son of man. What did you learn about that word like? What does that mean when you looked at your similes and metaphors? Huh? It's a simile. Yeah, it's a simile. Let's figure it out. Page 10 on your, uh, on your homework. Uh, chapter 8 of how to study your book. One was a metaphor and one was a simile. And the difference between the two is what? Yeah, one's implied. The metaphor is simply implied right? The other is a simile, and it makes a statement like or as, right? And by definition, uh, a comparison is a consideration or estimate 
of the similarities between two things or people. To give a likeness of something in order to understand what is otherwise unknown. It's very much like a parable. It's a earthly story with a heavenly meaning. A simile is, a, is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. It gives you something that you and I can relate to. It's not that, but it's like that. Like the set, a voice like the sound of many waters. It's not really many waters, but it's a roaring sound like the many waters would give, right? So now, did you any of you do word studies that you want to share before we close up? I just had something about a figure of speech. So okay. The alpha and omega. Uh huh. It's actually a figure of speech called a merism. It's M-E-R-I-S-M. Mm -hmm. And what that means is it distinguishes opposites to accentuate the whole. Oh, that's good. It, okay, give me that big word again. It's merism. M-E-R-I-S-M. I S mirror. Okay, to mirror something, mirrorism, and it's it to shows opposites to accentuate the whole. That's very good. I love that. Yeah, it is like bookends. That's the beginning and the end. Uh, my mom had two animals, a, a cat and a dog, and with the alpha and omega. <laughs> uh, yeah, very good, right? <laughs> alpha and omega. Um, Christ is the Alpha to indicate that he is the beginning and the end. Uh, the Lord God uh, means the supreme power and authority. So that's how he's presented in this book as supreme power and authority. Important? Yeah. So he is the Almighty. Um, also, the Almighty is he who holds sway over all things, the ruler of all, the Almighty God. Okay. We talked about one like a son of man. First and last. Primary. Okay. Alpha. First, or it can be dominant, or um, primary. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Yes. Right. And in the, in the um, Hebrew, alpha is the first letter of their alphabet. Yep. Okay. Um, I'm kicking myself because I didn't, I didn't do it. Uh, you look it up, but it, did anybody else look up for me? No, I did not. Because um, this is an old note I have in my Bible. Omega, I wrote, thanks to it, all knowledge comes from Well, in a way it could fit because once things are finished and it's the end, you do have all knowledge. Omniscient, all-knowing. That makes sense. He knows the end before the beginning. Okay, I won't write anything on this since we need to look it up. Maybe you can look that up this week. And then when we come in two weeks, maybe we'll remember to share that. Okay, I think we did... We did pretty good. We didn't get to go through. I have so many key words that I looked up on, on God. They were really, really good, though. Send those? Yes, they're going to come to you by email. In particular, what I really want to do, I might do this, send you my list, my list homework, because in that I have all that information about 
this being a phrase that goes together and that that shows the I am. And I thought that was one of the most profound things I learned this week. I just thought, wow, that is really cool. The one who is and who was the, the I am. And I, I love that. Okay. And then Jesus is called that also the I am, which again shows us the, the Trinity, the unity of the Trinity. All right. Thank you so much, you guys. It was a great week of work and we're out next week, but we'll be back in two weeks. Okay.